I am thrilled to announce that Enactor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc. All one word. That's K I N D P H A R M S I N C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, today my guest is the superb, the amazing, the outstanding Erin Moriarty. You know her as Starlight on the Boys, however you've seen her in other things like True Detective, Captain Fantastic, Driven, Bloodfather. She's got so many amazing projects and she's a great actress. I mean that with every word of sincerity. I've been blown away by how she's been able to balance drama and comedy and what she does, I got spoiled and got to see the whole season two of The Boys, is one of the finest performances I've ever seen. I'm going to make sure she gets a Golden Globe and an Emmy for it. I love you, Aaron. You're the best. Thank you for coming on. Here it is. Aaron Moriarty, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing? You know, I, re- I am okay, considering the state of the world, I w- would say... Compared to others, I'm doing really well, but it's a weird year, and I'm not immune to the funk of it, but I am okay. How are you? I'm hanging in. You know, I I stayed in New York during this pandemic and quarantine, so, you know, there was a real visceral feeling. I live in Williamsburg, and there were, I don't want to get graphic, but there were trucks, you know, when when we were at our, uh, what do they call that? The crux or the, the peak, and... You know, so I, I feel like New Yorkers really experience this in a physical way, but, but California is getting hit pretty hard now too, no? It is, it is. And I, I'm from New York City, so when they were doing really bad, I was going through quite a bit of some anxiety because my parents are there and they're now, they're not old, but they're older and they're of that age gap where they're not high risk, but they're higher risk and my whole family is there and we're, I come from a family of quintessential born and raised New Yorkers. Um, like we're thoroughbreds and New Yorkers are, I don't know if you experience this there, um, so, but they're stubborn. And so for my parents who are in their sixties 
to have lived their whole lives just taking the train and always going, going, going. Like they never stop. It's one of the reasons why I moved to LA. I miss New York a lot. I wouldn't be surprised if I end up back there, but it was that incessant doing that depleted me a little bit. So when the pandemic hit, I mean, for them to be forced to take, to stop taking the train took a lot and they never fully stopped. And so I'm just happy that everyone has stayed healthy and knock on wood will continue to because, you know, California is doing worse now, but I just feel like the way the United States is going, it's just going to be chronic waves until we receive some kind of magic bullet, whether it's the vaccine or whatever it is. But um, yeah, California, LA is not doing well now. So I would say at the moment, I'm sort of in pseudo quarantine because I'm doing press and like I have hair hair and makeup artists who I'm very close to, I see every day who live with high risk people. And so I'm tested all the time. I can't see anyone. You know what I mean? It's the only way to be responsible is if you kind of become really strict about it, which is such a weird way of living, honestly. This is bizarre. But, but, uh, you know, I think positivity is the key. And, and, you know, in order mm-hmm. to keep this, I know it's called an actor despairs, but it's a positive podcast. Let's start at Aaron's beginning. <laughs> So you grew up in New York City, right? I did. Yeah, I grew up in New York City and I had a have a very musical dad. He his day job was um working in hospice care. Um and always, you know, in the medical world, but his night job and his true like passion was being a blues musician and he's an amazing blues musician. He plays harmonica. So I grew up with like there and it, just a s- music going on all the time in the background. And I grew up alone with him half the time because my parents were divorced. And because it was just me and him and same with my mom, we developed like a very close, special relationship and happened to have a lot of the same interests, whether it was because he exposed me to them um, and I just absorbed them. I think it's a combo of taking a liking to them myself combined with being exposed to them constantly by him. But we watch movies all the time. You know, he was a single dad with like a toddler living alone with a little girl. And he wasn't, from what I understand now, um, having learned much later in life, he wasn't sure how to really raise a little girl on his own. And so we just, his, his, um, way of doing that was by exposing me to movies and watching movies together. Cause that's his wheelhouse. He loves movies. And so we just watched movies together incessantly all the time. It's all we did. And it was my favorite thing to do ever while I was growing up. And, um, but the thing is I started out, I started out singing, um, and he really encouraged me to do that. And I just would be 10 and I'd be recording myself. And then it merged into musical theater because I wanted to do something that was, um, on stage, more performative that involved acting. And then I worked in musical theater for a while, like community theater. Um, and eventually I just, firstly, I developed the most severe stage fright when it came to singing that it took away the joy. And I decided, you know, my version of singing is just singing alone just for myself. Secondly, I'm a terrible dancer. So that left me with acting. And then I just, um, yeah, I just slowly started to pursue a career in 
screen acting because movies were my favorite thing in the world. So what, I wanted what to be Broadway and theater. Was that them. something that interested you as well? Yeah, that was honestly, when I was younger, that was my total ultimate dream. I think I was, um, when I was 15, I met an agent who represented or knew a family friend of ours and he did TV shows and, and, and he did, commercials. And so he was the only agent I had an in with. So I happened to sign with him and then I ended up doing screen acting and loved it. But if you would have asked me around that time, my goal would have been to be on Broadway. Um, And still to this day, you know, Broadway to me and doing plays and that the intensity of it and the uninterrupted two hours of immersion into a character is heaven, but it's really hard to get into once you've been working on screen a lot and finding the right thing and then actually getting into it because, you know, theater um, productions recycle theater actors. So I'm just hoping one day something comes along and it's just meant to be, and I can, you know, spend some time in New York on stage, whether it's Broadway or, or if it's something that's a little bit more, you know, off Broadway, like Atlantic theater company or one of those things. But Theater, dr- dramatic theater more now is something that I can't wait to do whenever that will be, whether no, it's a couple years from now or 10 years from now. I, but hope, I hope we get to experience it soon. I really miss it. You know, it's, it's, it's a sad, feels weird. It feels weird to be in New York knowing not just Broadway, but like all theater is, is at an impasse, you know? I can't imagine because did, did you grow up in New York? I moved here at 18 for NYU. So if I'm 30 now, okay. 12 years. Okay. And where did you come from? Richmond, Virginia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so you've been in New York city for long enough to have experienced, obviously for an extended period of time, just, you know, New York, you know, you know what it is at its core. And, I haven't been to New York since this all started. It's the longest time I've been away from it. And even the concept, I'm getting chills right now, of fathoming uh, a Times Square that is dark feels apocalyptic to me. And and I miss theater so much. And I'm concerned, too. Like, there are people around the world, whether it's, like, in New York City, it's restaurateurs that have, like, lovely little hole-in-the-wall restaurants or it's totally. theater actors and theater and, you know, I've already heard a scary statistic, which is that so far, only so far, right, because we're far from this being over, 25% of small businesses in New York have closed permanently. So I think, you know, the impact is huge. But I also think that that coming out of this and the deprivation we're all experiencing of, like, not being able to kind of be creative or even just work, like, whether it's in a restaurant or what have you, is going to light a fire behind all of our... Am I allowed to curse? Yeah, yeah. Fuck, piss, hello. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, okay, great. Great, 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 great. That makes it a lot easier for me. But it's going to light a fire behind all of our asses to just freaking, like, to fucking commit to, um, like, bounding back into our jobs. And I think New York is going to come back at full force, despite what some people think. And I think that we're also not going to take a lot of that stuff for yeah. granted that we usually do. Yeah, totally. I pre I I I love your honesty and, and the positivity there. I think we all need 
Mm-hmm. We need more of that right now. You know, I think it's easy to kind of get mm-hmm. lost in your, your apartment, your house, or, you know, whatever your mm-hmm. quarantine situation is. But mm-hmm. when you were starting out, you know, what, what kind of things when you were, you said you got an agent at 15? Yeah, I got an agent at 15, but my parents, especially my mom, you know, I come from a pretty academic family. Um, my mom's side, my mom works in finance. My mom's side of the family is all doctors. My dad worked in hospice. Like education is really valued in my family. And, and, um, so the fact that I didn't go to college kind of made me, a little bit of the black sheep. And so when I was 15 and I begged for an agent, the compromise was that it would just be a commercial agent because he wouldn't take me out of, it wouldn't take me out of school too much. Um, and I could still focus on my studies and my parents still very much wanted me to go to college and I was still on track for that. And, um, and so, but of course nothing ever happens the way you plan for it to happen. And he, I got cast in a soap opera in New York and I ended up missing school a lot. And that kind of catalyzed like a steady work stream from the age of 16 to 18 that ultimately caused me to switch to homeschooling my last year of high school. Um, But, you know, I was so resentful at the time when my parents wouldn't allow me to fully like just fling myself into the field, but I'm actually really grateful in retrospect because even entering it at like starting to do my first movie when I was 16 and how adult the world is. And I was just at the age where I could handle it and digest it all in a decent way, but it accelerates your maturation process and you can either handle it or not, I don't think I could have handled it if I were any younger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the, I, I just had Jenna Malone on last week and, and, you know, starting so mm. young, I feel like it's a blessing and a curse, you know, to, to, to yeah. into the chaos of this business and the monstrosity of yeah. some of the people that we now are publicly known as monsters, you know, and, and, There's a reckoning continuing to happen, and I hope it only gets better in that direction. But then I'm curious, for for high school, did you do LaGuardia? No, I didn't. I wanted to go. And again, like, my I was – okay, so I was not allowed to go to a school that was performing arts. I, like – like, my family are very much – if they didn't go to an Ivy League, they went to a sub-Ivy, right? And so they said – You're going to go to private high school because it combines arts and academics well with the public schools in New York City. While I would say that actually, like if I had a kid, I would prefer to send them to public school entirely just because of the diversity. But public schools, not to generalize, but sort of true that like you either have the ones that are like Stuyvesant or Bronx science or those which are extremely academic. And those would have been the ones that I would have gone to, or you've got the LaGuardia's and um, the Bronx science, while that would have been the one that was accepted by my family, it just didn't have the level of, it didn't have the balance between academic and art. So I ended up going to private school because it had a bit of both. And that was, again, another compromise. 
Um, so yeah, it would really my whole childhood, as soon as my parents realized how committed I was to the acting thing was a matter of supporting it, but yeah. kind of trying to keep me grounded and let me be a child for as long as possible mm-hmm. and really explore the acting while also really getting a good education, and, and, you know, and, real, um, and social yeah. experiences. Yeah. I mean, that was so important and, and it's interesting because again, I feel like I kind of entered the industry at the exact right time because I was just old enough where I was still, I was young. I was making so many mistakes. I was definitely mature, but around 18, I got my first job where I was surrounded by adults and we were playing a family and I, I'm just really lucky for this, but they were all so lovely and they kind of took me under their wing. And to this day, they're like my best friends and they played like, the people who I was closest to played my aunt and my uncle, and they, to this day, have held roles like, roles like that in my life. And they are the ones who came in when I was 18. And I probably could have gone on two paths, right? I was on the path of one that was, you know, I was really, like, dedicated to pursuing my career, but I also was not, my lifestyle was not healthy, you know, I succumbed to all the cliches. And then I had people who were older. I, in fact, I lived with one of my best friends on the, from this TV show. We lived together for six months and she taught me like, no, this is actually how you can have fun, but also live a healthy lifestyle. And you're going to feel better yeah. doing that. And ever that changed my life. If that had not happened, I don't know where I'd be now. I'd probably be in the same place. I would just, you know, have some things I'd have to work through even more than I already do in therapy. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah. It's been, that's been the hardest part yeah. about this whole quarantine thing is having to switch to virtual therapy, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. It changes it so much. It's that it's, but in every sense, it's like, you know, even in the beginning when we were all just like FaceTiming our friends and anyone who was not in our quarantine pod, it's, it really, I'm an introvert. Like I really like to be alone. That's where I get my energy. In fact, I like to be alone too much, but it's, I like to choose to be alone. And then when we, when we were like, when real social interactions were extracted from our lives and it was just reduced to FaceTimes, it got really hard. It just like, it teaches you that connection is just such a pillar of our health and no one is immune to that fact, I think. Yeah. So then, what, can you say what film this was that you booked at 18? Because I'm, I'm familiar with your work. This, uh, you did a, a few soaps, didn't you? Uh-huh. Was that your first? I did a few. I did a few. Oh, I did. Okay, so I did, I did one soap, but that was when I was really young. This that I booked at 18, really funny because it just goes to show, people say this, but it's true, that you never know what's going to come back around or what you will be able to get out of a job eventually because – so this job, um, it was a, it was a show on ABC. It was called Red Widow. Um, it didn't turn out the way any of us wanted it to turn out and it got canceled right away. But we shot it for six months in Vancouver. It was my first time being a regular on a show. I worked with just awesome actors on it who really at that point were still very new to the film and television industry. Like, one of my best friends I made from it who played my uncle was the actor Pedro Pascal from Game of oh, Thrones. And like, 
So we all were in Vancouver, having the time of our lives, bonding like a family. And the funny thing is, you like sometimes projects will come out and they make no impact on your career. In fact, most of the time, okay, it's rare that a project actually comes out and it gives you what you want out of it in terms of catalyzing a higher career trajectory. But it made the deepest personal impact I've ever had. I made some friends who, like I said, were a little older. So they just, in a non-degrading way, were able to kind of become, mentors is too formal of a word, but just family members to me who kind of took me under their wing, Pedro included. And um, anyway, so it was an ABC show, but the showrunner who I became really close to, Melissa Rosenberg, ultimately became the showrunner for Jessica Jones. And she cast me in that as a regular the first season. And that did the do best well. Of that and show. that did kind of, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, I'm biased, obviously. but I, I love the um, work in that one. Um, and so, so, <laughs> thank you. So, yeah, so I ended up working with her later on a project that was super successful. So, I think it just kind of teaches you to just, you never know what you're going to get out of a project. You can never possibly know. And all you got to do is enjoy yourself and and try to like the people you work with. And hopefully they're not assholes. I've actually been really lucky most of the time they haven't been. And uh, yeah. And then it usually amounts to something. And if that something is personal, like friendships, that's, important you know that's that's got to be a priority as well like it's not you know career and work is so important and you always everyone is always trying to get to the next level and me included but I wouldn't trade a more successful show for the show that I did that was un that was unsuccessful just because of the people I met on it what which one was that uh, well I don't do you mind sharing yeah it was called Red Widow Oh yeah, ABC. I, I, I call Red Widow. Um, it was like a shows are always. Yeah, it was like a Russian one. mafia kind of thing. It was based on a. It was based on another show that was Eastern European called Pinoza that was brilliant. You know, oftentimes the Eastern European versions or European versions are superior, and that was true in this case. And you know, it had great scripts. It was really fun to film. It was fun to film like a mafia drama, but. You know, sometimes the outcome doesn't uh, match your expectations and it kind of is what it is and you move on, you know? I think network shows are great just because there's so many economics involved. Even good ones get canceled, you know? Like so many of my favorite shows that got canceled, I think sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, we've been lucky in an environment now as, as content creators have moved outside of networks where shows like networks like Amazon or Netflix or Facebook or whatever will pick up a show that had like a, a cold falling speed. Yeah. In terms of network shows, I do think it's really cool that like the, when it comes to kind of the supply and demand of TV allies, like a, the creation of shows and movies that are about certain things. Like I think that what's going on right now is going to catalyze the making of a lot of, films about racial issues yeah. but also demand can ca- can cause a show that was dropped to be picked up like for example there's a show on Amazon Prime um, that is called The Expanse and Jeff Bezos I think it was on Sci-Fi Jeff Bezos was such a big fan 
of the expanse that when he found out they were canceling it, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Bring it over to Amazon. Now, Jeff Bezos is the kind of person who has the power to do that, but that's, that's <laughs> awesome. Like, now you kind of, you just now know. Yeah. I feel like your career is literally my dream career. I mean, you've worked with all the greats, and you've been able to, to buoy it with, like, cool indies like Captain Fantastic and Kings of Summer, and then like, mm-hmm. cool action, you know, like, mm-hmm. the, was it Father's, the Mel Gibson film? I love that one. Father? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm father. sober and I <laughs> love the opening monologue. You know, it's like, so it just touched me and then your mm-hmm. relationship. But but before we dig into all these projects, you know, I'm curious when, when Red, uh, Red Widow, is that correct? Yes. When, mm-hmm. when you went back to the marketplace and you went back to your agent, what was interesting to you, Aaron? Like, did you, did you guys have a plan of doing co-star, guest star reoccurrings again? Or were you interested in making Because I know you did The Watch, which was a huge hit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I really wish I could say that, like, after each project at the beginning, I went back to the drawing board with my agents and said, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I don't want to do. And let's find this and find that. But honestly, I was still at such an early stage that I was saying... I was just having auditions come at me and saying yes to most of them. And if I got a job saying yes to most of those, like I was still very much in the phase of just kind of um, adopting the concept of work, beginning work. And honestly, the variety of things ended up being a lucky, a lucky happenstance that I actually didn't have full control over. You know, I was, I was young. I was auditioning for everything. I, you know, after Bloodfather, I did Captain Fantastic right after, and then I didn't work for like a year. You know, you just, it just goes to show. Like I remember booking Bloodfather and you never know. And I didn't, you know, but it's the lead opposite of Gibson and and you make assumptions. Like all the action, was that a blast? It looked like it was was so much fun. It was so fun. The funny thing is like when it comes to action films or action sequences in films, like I'm not, I'm not a huge action film person, but when I've done action scenes in the boys and blood father, I have loved doing them. I think they're so fun. And I think it's just because it's like a side of myself that I don't normally tap. Like I, I, I don't ride motorcycles. I don't fight people. And so it was just always like a high adrenaline thrill. And Bloodfather was so fun. And it was just, you know, you cannot, the, the, the experience of working um, for two months with opposite them, basically. Yeah. Yeah. One-on-one every day, two weeks is like boot camp for acting and, they're great. So you feed off of them and they make you better. And it was just invaluable. Like I just, and, and not only in front of the camera, like off the camera and the way they conducted themselves. Cause Mel, you know, you've got this, this mega star and he was just like willing to do everything, willing to do, um, to force his call times, meaning do less of a turnaround. He was just like, a cool presence on set. And you just, you see someone like that who's really cool. And you just are like, you know what? We work in an industry where we're so lucky that, that what our 
our ha- our habits or our jobs, like not, not habits, our passions, our passions and our interests are our jobs. And that's really rare. Like I've seen it in my parents, for us, for me to get paid for just what I love to do for fun that I would actually do for free is amazing. So you see someone like Mel Gibson, who's so nice offset to everyone, no matter who they are in the crew. And you just think like, we're the lucky ones. We're the ones who get compensated some of the most on any set. We're doing something that we just get to have fun with and get paid for. Why would you ever be an asshole? Like there's no excuse. And so now it's just like, I honestly don't care what I work on in terms of the genre, as long as it's good material and as long as it's good people to work with. Cause I just wasting time working with people who are nothing less than extremely kind and grateful for the fact that we get to do what we get to do is, is just like, it's intolerable to me to experience the inflated egos that this industry breeds. But you know what? I'm so glad you're saying anyone that. who I've worked with who has been like, yeah, anyone I, who I've worked with though, who would be deemed like, I don't even like this term, but like an A-lister, like literally yeah. has been kind. And you just think, you know what? Those are the people who have longevity because at the end of the day, you want to work with those people. They make things easier. Film sets are intense. And so I am just like, look, I don't, I don't want to waste my time and spend my time anymore around someone who I have to act with, who is either rude or, or doesn't do their work. It's just a waste of time and it's not worth it. I don't care what project it is. It's not worth it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, one of the intentions of this show was like going after guests that I've heard aren't assholes and are cool. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you because I love your perspective and I love your talents and I love the diversity, you know, like I got to ask, you know, like being a part of something that just goes crazy through the award circuit and being in like one of the most adorable, funny scenes in in the movie what was that experience like? Was that fun? Just like seeing that movie shoot, you know, what was yeah. an indie quote to, you know, being at the Oscars and Golden Globes and all that? Yeah, you know, it was crazy and it was surreal, but in the most surreal way it could have been. The reason being that we shot it and it took a long time for it to be completed and come out. Like, oh, wow. I'm not sure why, but the post production phase took years. And most of the time when that happens, it means that something's not sticking with the film and it's going to be straight to VOD. And there are exceptions, but this, the amount of time it took, but then it premiered firstly at Cannes. And yeah, I happened to be there too because Bloodfather was premiering at Cannes. So that was just like, huh? You, you yeah, 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 yeah. I was there, and I just was. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I went for Bloodfather. You know, Captain Fantastic had this massive, um, yes. massive uh, ensemble cast, and I was like, uh, you know, I was on the periphery. Although I love them, it was so fun to work on that job because you come in for two days and they welcomed me like I was a part of their family. But I was at Cannes for Bloodfather, but then I got to see Matt Ross, the director of Captain Fantastic there at the Cannes dinner that's hosted by the owner of Cannes and just go up to him and say, congratulations. It was just surreal. Okay. So that was the beginning and I was hearing good things. And then 
Captain Fantastic just kept being received well. And then we all went to the SAG Awards and were nominated as an ensemble cast. And, you know, it would have been surreal no matter what, but because we waited two years to get that result and because we were all kind of kept on our toes and wondering, like, is this what we hoped it would be? Because Vigo's incredible. Matt, the director, is incredibly smart. I knew it would be, but you also just never know. And then it was, and it was totally surreal. And it's another example, like Vigo Mortensen, the most low-key, kindest, warmest, normal human being you've ever met, Um, doesn't live in the United States. Like, just, just out of the industry, but still in it in the most important way. And just again, a lesson that like the best ones that stick around are kind human beings. So, so it was, so it was just fun. Anytime a project does really well. And that one is probably the one that people have come up to and said that it kind of struck a personal chord with them it's just very cool. Like I just feel lucky to have been a part of it at all, you know? And I, for the rest of my life, if I did movies like that and was just on the periphery, that would be great. Like I don't need to be the lead of anything. I love, I love to just work with cool people, amazing casts, good scripts. Yeah. And I would rather do small roles and great projects than lead roles and projects that creatively are not ones that I would um, go see myself in the movie theater. You know what I mean? Totally. I love that about you. And, and also just like, you know, I have to, ask, what was it like doing true detective season one? Like you and Alexandra Daddario, you know, like you became these yeah. huge, amazing, yeah. female, like multi <laughs> stars, you know, what was it like being a part of a show that arguably like kind of reinvented HBO, you know, in the post game of Thrones. Er- yeah. I think it was amazing, current, like, but still, it, yeah, that, that was the thing that the got current, movie stars yeah. doing TV, right? Yeah. Yes. It was the concept of them committing to one year. That was a really special experience actually, because again, like being on the periphery, you never know whether you're going to feel like you're truly a part of it or not. But that whole summer we were filming in new Orleans, I was back and forth and like Woody became, became friends with him. Um, just adore him, like good human being, low key, like just such a good actor. And I just sat there and I've had so many moments where I'm like, you know what? Like just the pe- the people I've gotten to work with, him included, has just been enough. Like it, it, it's almost less about myself and more about these people that I've gotten to work with in really close proximity and work opposite of that's kind of just been been enough and if it continues to be like that then that would be enough and I just worked with him observed him like hung out with him and he just was the coolest and that director Carrie Fukunaga for season one the fact that he directed every episode I just think they should do more with television and I think it really paid off and I you know his approach into my role you know I came into it and it was very welcoming and it was like let's talk about this let's collaborate on this where whether it's the aesthetic of the character because she was a goth, right? So yeah. like what she's wearing and what she's bringing to the scene. And it, and even though she's a character of a few lines, there are nuances to add there. Totally. And that can be kind of a challenge and a challenge that's really fun to tackle. Yeah. So it was a blast. It was so fun. And you know what? I auditioned for it and I didn't get the scripts, 
I only got the scripts for the episodes I was in when I got well, to New Orleans. I just knew Matthew. Was he was the villain. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And so all I knew was Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson were in it. So I was down. So I got there and I only had the scripts for my, my episodes. And the director was like, I'll send you all of them. So I remember it. I got to New Orleans. I was like in the gym on the elliptical reading the all of the scripts for True Detective on my iPad, having no idea what I'd gotten into. And I read them and I was like, holy fucking shit. I mean, like, it was True Detective. So it was some of the best scripts I've ever read. But I didn't know what I was getting into. And then I was in New Orleans about to film when I finally got it. And I was like, whoa, I'm about to be in something that I would literally be a fly on the wall for. It was so cool. That's amazing. I'm so glad. And it's so wonderful to hear the gratitude and, and the humility you have. I mean, you're going to go so far in this business. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be at your Oscar show and I'm going to be the guy with the foghorn all the way on like the six bout <laughs> throwing CBD treats at you. <laughs> God, please, I'll need all of this CBD. Oh my God. So then, um, you know, I know you, I don't want to skip past them because I, I enjoy them all, but like, you did the miracle season and, and driven and you know, we're, we're, yes. you've worked in so mm-hmm. many uh, styles mm-hmm. of, of content. You know what, mm-hmm. when, when you get a script, what interests Aaron? Is it character? Is it director? Is it the cast? Like what, what makes you say yes? I think it really varies. I think for me, the most important thing is often the material itself. Um, and then, and then, of course, the character probably is of equal value to me. But the material first and foremost, and if I really like the material, then I'm in. Because it kind of, like I said, like if it involves a role that is a main role or maybe on the side a little bit more, that doesn't really matter to me if it's good material. And then it's just such a plus if it's producers or director or actors I really want to work with because I also really like working with first-time directors. I think it's really fun and, and people who are just at the beginning and working on a passion project. So I think material is the most important and quality of that. Um, but at the same time, you know, if there's material that I think needs work, but there's a character in it that I know, like that involves something I've never done before, that would be a particular challenge or something that... I've formerly been afraid of, then I see a benefit in doing it for that reason. And so I'll do it for that reason. But, you know, the only thing that I would say is just, or the thing that I would say is the most important is just kind of, you know, getting on a group call with my reps and just saying like, okay, let's try and make this a really mindful choice. And what here could be something that's really fun to work with, whether it's just, Merely being in a project that's got a great script, that's enough. Or script, meh, but the character's got stuff I've not done before, and that alone would be fun. Or, honestly, if something's about to film in Paris, and the script ain't that good, but I get to go to Paris for three (laughs) months, I'm not opposed to also doing something for the life experience. You know, like, (laughs) I'm not above that at all, of course. We'll give you the next mission possible. It's a lot of factors. Yeah. Wherever, just any project that can take me to the best environments, and those would be the most high profile of them, but I'm not going to say no to that. 
I would love to relocate to somewhere really beautiful and foreign for a while, especially yeah. after this year. Oh, my oh, God. Couldn't agree more. So then talk to me, you know, before we jump into the boys, do you enjoy working in comedy and drama equally as much? Like, I know we spoke about the indies and I totally agree that's as an actor, that's the work I want to do. But like, do you find comedy fun? Because I find it personally very difficult because like I can, I can deliver a monologue, but like where a joke hits, you know, I never, I never know where to, to land it, you know? And I've, I, that's why I never understood why comedy I, is not like a part of the award season. It is in like the Emmys and, and Golden Globes, mm-hmm. but the Oscars, there should be comedy section. I agree. You know, I've always thought that really good comedians usually can make really good actors, but really good actors can very, rarely make really good comedians, uh-huh. you know? Um, I love working in both. Um, I'm, I would say that comedic acting is not my forte. Like, give me, like, I'm just like you. Give me a dramatic monologue and I'll work through it. And that's more in my wheelhouse. And I was, I think also it's because I went to acting classes in school and it's like, they really focus on the drama of it. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing either, but let me put it this way. Like, uh, there's a reason why in a lot of the comedies I've done, I've played a straight character. And that's not to say that it's something that I continuously work on. And I just find it to be, I find comedic timing and deliverance to be really specific. And I have so much respect for people who can nail it. Like Jack Wade is an example of someone who's really, I mean, he basically is a comedian, right? And he asked Jack about the movie I find together. <laughs> yeah. It's on Amazon, I'll uh-huh. tell you that. <laughs> but, uh, we've all been in the campy bad movies, let yeah. me tell you. We've all been in them. Yeah. Um, hey, um, work is work. So, yeah, I mean. So let's talk about the boys. So For sure. How did this come mm-hmm. your way? Or I'm curious how it was pitched to you because it is a superhero thing, but it spoofs it mm-hmm. at the same time. So it's really kind of this amalgamation mm-hmm. of drama, comedy, and satire. Mm-hmm. With the boys, uh, I got I was sent it in the very typical way, meaning that my agent sent me the project in an email. They sent me the long line, they sent me the script, and then I remember like briefly reading it and reading like, okay, superhero genre, and my name is Starlight. Oh god damn it. Not another fucking superhero show. Nothing against them, but I just am fatigued of them personally. And I also am like, you know, to do them right these days, you got to make them so different. So, and then I saw Seth and Evan were involved and I was like, hang on a minute, this might be a little different. And then I read the script and I like one script and I was like, this is, this is, uh, this is the best take on superheroes I've ever read. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cynical person. Okay. And I love media. I love that, like TV shows and movies that take on issues in our world that would be deemed taboo because it makes them a little bit less taboo. But I also like just being honest about what's going on. And it felt like that was the show wrapped up in the fun packaging of superheroes. So one script in and I was in and I put myself on tape for it. And I remember something like specific and kind of rare for me, which is that usually when I put myself on tape for something, it takes a long time to get into it and to warm up into it. And there was something about this 
character and the monologue from the audition, which was about, which was from, from season one, episode one, where I talk, I'm auditioning to be in a seven. And I talk about not understanding why being hopeful and naive have to be the same thing. And it just clicked in a way that I just was like, okay, I might not get this role, but I feel confident in my interpretation for the tape. And it, I literally went in and out with dense sides to self tape. And it took 30 you know, minutes. It was for Starlight? It, which is or, short. Or were you yeah. for a different role? Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. Definitely Starlight. So I auditioned for her. And I didn't hear back for a long time. And I emailed my agents months later. And I was like, hey, you know, I know there's probably a cattle call for this, but I really like it. Any word. And they were like, oh, yeah, um, actually, you're going to test for it tomorrow. No. And it just happened really quick. And I didn't expect to get it. Yeah. But no, I was in, uh, when I read the log, when I like glanced at the log line, glanced at the title, glanced at the role, my visceral response was, do we really need another one of these? And then of course the script defied that initial perception. And I was in like script one, the way they introduced that character, I was, in. And I'd wanted and I'd wanted to do a TV show for a while. I'd been doing indies for a few years at that point, and it had been awesome. But I really was um, craving the consistency and the ability to sink my teeth into a character for an extended period of time. And it came along, so it was um, it was just fortunate. Like it was just really great timing. And this, yeah, script number one had me sold by like ten pages into it. That's amazing. And how was the test? Like, you know, those can be so the, the pressure you feel like, how did you get out of the press? You know, for, for the actors listening, how were you able to go in there? Cause like, I talk about this all the time on this podcast. There's the difference between good acting and great acting. And you are a great actress. And I mean that with every word of sincerity, because there's no other actress in the world that could have played that role. Like, I, I, I mean, I could name A-listers that couldn't have done what you did with that character. Wow. And I, 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 wow. I firmly believe that, you know, obviously Anthony's, you know, is a hilarious villain, but, uh, yeah, you're, you carry that show, you know, you're, you are the boys, mm-hmm. you know, like, so what was it like when you mm-hmm. walked into that? Well, for the test, I remember, um, walking into it and it ended up going on. It, it took 90 minutes. It took an hour and a half. So it was really long for a test. And what I remember is air Kripke through like 10 different versions of each scene at me. And I think, you know, of course in the moment I'm a standard uh, self-conscious and, and insecure actor. And so I thought, Oh, I'm not, getting it quite right but in retrospect I think it was him throwing me different versions just to see if I could adapt and and so we did lots of different versions and it took a long time but it was really fun but I also you know when you're putting yourself out there so much for a project that you really want and you're expending so much energy you leave it feeling like you've run a marathon right so I walked out exhausted and Eric did something that no showrunners ever done or no directors ever done to me, even when I booked a role that was so reflective of who he is. He's such a good dude. He said, 
you know, just so you know, no matter what happens, like you're, you're the creative choice. I am rooting for you. And it just, it just made me realize that I hadn't, firstly, I hadn't fucked up the test, but yeah, also you had that, a wonderful ally. Yeah. And, and, and that, and that, you know, if it didn't go my way, I still would walk away knowing that I had done a good job and, and it's just reinforcement to keep going. But then I did get the job. And so that was awesome. But, but it was just really kind of him to say that because as actors, we don't often get that intel. We usually get it's I often have to reach out to my agents and say, hey, can I get feedback even if it's negative? Yeah, I just can need some to- casting directors give me the time of day. Yeah. Yeah, just specifics. Like I wanna know, like give let everything be a learning experience. And so for him to say that made me walk away feeling like I'd done everything I could do and it was out of my hands. And so the whole process was one that was kind of special and great and would have been special whether I'd gotten the role or not. Um, but then I got it and yeah, you know, um, I think it was very, if, if I'm being honest, I think it was easy to tap into that grounding component of Starlight, meaning the fact that she is the moral compass of the show and the one that is earnest because there are a lot of aspects of her that I related to and, for a reason, like they, they, it's intentional to have drawn parallels with her experience to young women, women entering the entertainment industry and, and just that earnestness that you wish people wouldn't be degrading about because they can be, you know, like you're hopeful and you're trying your best and you're earnest and people are like, for some reason, instead of just being supportive and letting you fling yourself at this thing that you really want, it's often met with not always, but sometimes with, a, uh, and sometimes unintentionally, but a condescending response. Yeah. And the honesty of the character is something that I seek to um, have in myself and, there are lots of aspects of her that I related to that made it really easy to tap into the role and made me also feel very invested in the role. So if there were components that weren't directly related to me, I just kind of fell in love with her and I kind of just, it became very important for me to do her justice in the sexual abuse part because she matters to me in a weird way. Like, she feels like, you know, she's kind of sunken deeper under my skin as we've continued to film. And because she's such a good human being, I've always felt kind of protective over, you know, anyone who's newly coming into the industry and especially young women. And I almost feel protective over her. And that care has led me, has incentivized me to work harder to just do every moment justice and make her as nuanced and, um, interesting and 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 just overall do that character justice as much as i possibly can well you certainly have done i mean an out of this world job with her season one was amazing and season two i think just elevated that show to a whole nother level and i loved everything yeah, that you did in her starlight's journey i'm curious you know because mm-hmm. i do myself do you work with a coach on you know like Mm. developing a character or is that an individual process for you yeah so i um have worked with two coaches that have made 
an invaluable impact on my life. Um, and I studied with them so much. I mean, I did my 10,000 hours and more with both of them through one-on-one coachings and class. And um, it really depends on the role. And for Starlight... If you named her, name them, is, or is that... Oh, no, yeah, of course. I love, no, I want to give them credit. It would be Sheila Gray in yeah. New York City, um, who actually also taught um, Chase Crawford. The Deep was one of his first coaches, too. Oh. And Michael Wilson out in L.A., who I also... I just love him and just... You know, I think with really good coaches, they become like family members or yeah. therapists to you because they learn so much about you and you're totally. so vulnerable around them. And Michael Wilson just laid the groundwork for how I approach roles. And I spent so much time with him that it kind of just exercised my, I always like to use the word technique. It sounds so formal and a little bit hoity-toity, but technique muscle. And yeah. and so I use that technique with every single scene. I use the starlight. So we've not done one-on-one coachings for it, but he's the, the, the reason why I use the technique I do and the reason why starlight has the nuances she does. And, you know, for example, when I was doing Bloodfather every Sunday, I would have a meeting with him through Skype um, to go over the week up the upcoming week of work. And I've done that with him a lot on projects. So he stays with me, whether I, whether he's directly present in my life or not. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, that's one of the most important things I would say to any actor is to find a coach who you really click with because you, it really helps to get an external perspective. And frankly, to have someone who can sometimes kick your ass into shape, because I've had a lot of moments where I've gotten some tough love and I never want to stop being criticized and you never it's should be around people who grow. only because compliment if, you. If you stop growing, then what's the point of, you know, like I, I, Shea Wiggum uh, connected exactly. to his coach in LA, yeah. Tom Draper, and here in New York City, I work with Ted Slaberski and Rob McCaskill, and I don't know where I'd be without them. And I'm shouting them out because they, they've changed my life. So it, it, it's therapy. In some- yep, it is. It totally yeah. is. It totally is because it's it's therapy, and it can be very cathartic, you know, and, and they teach you how to really access those emotions you need in such a genuine way. And the difference is night and day. And no job I've gotten up until this point would have been would have been booked had I not spent so much time with either of these coaches. And and going back to the fawn on Bloodfather, you know this this makes Bloodfather look like an indie without no action. So how was it doing all these major <laughs> flying and you know cars being stopped mm-hmm. and subway? Like was it a blast? Honestly, it's so fun like i mostly and i kind of like this because i haven't worked with a lot of green screen and my character doesn't fly and so actually that's a good thing because the action scenes i have are just fighting and so leading up to it i train with our amazing sun quarter teague um teague fong and we uh trained a lot we did some boxing and then i learned the choreography and then like in season one when i get to beat up those guys who are about to rape that young woman first of all what young woman doesn't want to beat up a couple guys who are about to abuse a young girl? Yeah. And so the catharsis of that and just the aggression I got to let out. And then also this therapeutic tactic I've learned when is that, you know, you put 
when you really want to punch in the place of the person you're attacking. And it adds a little extra oomph to your aggression. And it's so fun. Like we shot that over a night shoot. Night shoots are not my forte. I'm not a night owl. Like I'm like early to bed, early to rise. Nights are not my time. I have the bedtime schedule of an old person. So when I do night shoots, it's like, it's a struggle. But then we shot this scene where I'm like fighting these guys all night long. And I was like, let's just keep going. Let's keep until like six in the morning. I just, I couldn't stop. So I don't know what that means. If I should take boxing and I have aggression within me that MMA on your neck. Probably. (laughs) Like I should definitely do boxing. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm really grateful for this job because these fight scenes, especially, oh, my God, my favorite fight scene to date is in the finale of season two. So everyone's going to have to wait to watch. But, oh, my God, was it's it the out, most out, fun right? thing it's I've ever done? Like, I, not season eight. No, okay, so the first three episodes came out Friday. And we've now switched to the releasing um, protocol where we do – First three episodes and then every other episode on a weekly basis. So the next episode is out Friday. Ah, I got really spoiled in Amazon <laughs> semi season two. So I. <laughs> oh, oh, they sent it to you. Okay. <laughs> seen, okay. So my favorite fight scene in episode eight. Yeah. But let me just tell you, like, I haven't done this yet, but if they brought, uh, I'm going to say this now, I'm going to try and manifest it. Yeah. If they bring on a season where they want me to fight in every single episode, I am game because. Huh. I don't know what it says about me, but punching, throwing punches and fighting and all that stuff. I love it. It's so fun. You're amazing in that season. And I'm really glad you told me that because I was about to accidentally reveal spoilers. I don't want Jeff Bezos calling me. Yeah. <laughs> but you're so amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think Starlight really comes into her own, you know, because like, I don't. It, it. I feel like in so many ways the what? It, what is the headquarters called again? Uh, Vought. Vought headquarters. Yeah. I. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Yeah. Maybe because of the times I'm interpreting it, but I. I see so many Trumps office parallels with the misinformation and the propaganda. Oh. You, you know, and and maybe oh that's me, but I. That's you know, and I kind of. No, that's not just you. Yeah. Not just you. And so. I think we. Yeah. Keep going. I'm listening. What I love, I love what you do in that season. And then also the chemistry with Jack, even though the betrayal in season one, it just, Mm -hmm. you guys, you guys are just like, you you just want each other to be together. You can't, you can't make that kind of chemistry, you know, you guys are so good. I know. But he's so sweet. Yeah, I know. It's so, he's so sweet. He's so easy to work with. And I, we both have similar approaches to scenes. So we're really lucky for that. And he just is such a worker bee. And I just so respect that. Like when we show up to set, we both know our lines and we're at the point where we know them so well that we just let them go and we play and we're there for each other. And we just give each other everything we can in our power. And there's nothing we're, we're open to constructive criticism, mutual constructive criticism. And, but it's mostly just. You know, I don't know what it, 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 we're really good friends outside of the show as well. And just, you know, the chemistry we have as friends in terms of like having connected a lot because you connect with people you work with when you work under such intense circumstances with them. 
it just lends to a comfortability that's just let us explore nuances in that romance. And it's just, to be honest, I would say the most fun I have um, and are the scenes I have between Huey and Annie. Yeah. Um, just exploring the relationship. And yeah. um, I'm so happy we're going characters. back and we'll be able to do it. And, and exactly. that's the cool thing about the actor. Exactly. Well, I don't want to take up all your time, but I'll have to have you back because uh, you're amazing. And I would I love, love to come back. Um, so I would love to come back. What, you know, for, for, for all the actors listening, and I know this can be a very broad question, final two questions mm. is, what advice would you have? You know, it's a pandemic, you know, auditions are scarce, even if you are with, you know, UTA or mm. DAA, you know, people, mm. you know, even it, Anthony was saying, you know, he doesn't know when certain things are going to go for him. So just for those that are, aren't even, you know, that far at the beginning, like a young Aaron, wide eyed, 18 year old mm-hmm. looking to, to make her stamp. What, what advice would you have? Mm-hmm. I would say that I would say that the slow burn lends itself to longevity and satisfaction more than the peaking very young. So I would say to trust the slowness of booking jobs, gaining experience, gaining experiences, learning from them and actually not expecting or hoping for something that will make you explode at a young age. Yeah. I think slow burn and slow progression leads you to a place where with every opportunity, you're really ready for that, for it on a personal and professional level. Um, and so to everyone says this, it's easier said than done to absorb it, but to just, you know, if you're an actor, you know, yeah. yourself you can trust your ability trust that and be patient and then the other thing would be to never stop studying you know especially when you're young and going back to what we said is find a coach yeah. find a coach who you click with personally professionally who supports you but is not going to um you know, be at all lazy with you, meaning they're going to give you the tough criticism you need when you need it and kind of a kick in the ass when you need it, but then also always do it with love and also give you the support when you need it and the encouragement. But it's that coach. I would say that there are so many actors, successful actors I know who attribute myself included their success to a coach that came in during a formative period of their career mm-hmm. and just gave them the external perspective they needed to hone in their and their approach to building characters. So yeah, I would say those two things. Okay. Two, th- two final things here. Uh, what's next yeah. for Aaron? You know, I know we're in a pandemic, but do you have, like, I know boys got picked up for season three. So yes. do you, is that, is that going to be the next thing or are you got anything else? Yeah. Yeah. That's the next thing. I got to be honest. That's been one of the reasons why it's been one of the harder years. I, the thing that I had lined up that I was really excited for was going to film in New York city. And oh, so it's fun to grab coffee. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I'll be there eventually. Trust me. I miss it so much, but <laughs> I know, but so it will be the boys in January. That's what I assume. Oh, you guys are starting in January. The thing that, 
We're starting in January. So, you know, it's September, October, November, before we know it, it's the holidays. I would have loved to have done this project this year. I wish I could talk about it. Yeah. It was so exciting, but I'm not going to because I don't know when we're going to start. Uh, this Look, for me to have lost a job this year, but to be able to return to the boys is still a lucky position. I complain too much, but unfortunately, anything that I was excited about other than the boys is being tabled until we finish season three because nothing's going to happen before we start season three. But we will have an entire new season that is starting to shoot in January. Okay. Well, Aaron Moriarty, I'm such mm. a good fan, and I got so much love for you. And I look forward to the day we mm. finally connect when this chaos is descended. And I'm wishing you positive energy. And I've heard that you've enjoyed CBD. And as anyone who listens to this podcast knows, there's a two-minute ad at the top. So I'm going to send you Kind Farms product. Let me take over that two-minute ad slot or add to it. Um, I know that you recently did an interview with my good friend, Anthony Starr, who's also on The Boys, and you sent him a CBD package. And I have been stealing all his CBD gummies. So, um, And I have been taking them in the morning, taking them at night. And let me just say that CBD in general, I'm fully behind, but I need more. I need now more than ever. And those CBD gummies, I've had a lot. I'm a CBD person. I am all for it. Those CBD gummies are the best I have had. I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with them. So well, Pine Farms, thank and this you is for your not product. Sponsored. <laughs> this is not sponsored. This comes from experience and I will continue to steal some off of Anthony. I'm so going to send you a package. You I'm going to email narrative well, right after this ends. And I, I'm going to hook you up. And I I'm got so much so love for you. That. And let's do this again. Likewise. Thank you so All right. much. Love, yes, please. Would love. love that. Maybe right. in person in New York yeah, one day. Yeah, come to the studio. Right. And I cannot be I know. Well, we'll, we'll hang Any soon. excuse to come to me. Yeah. Yeah. All Bye. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.